Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. And it reads, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is, foot, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for it reveals truth. It defines truth. Let our hearts engage with your word. Do as you will in our hearts. Convict us, encourage us. Lord, point us to truth. Let what I be said from my mouth let not be too much. Let me not also shy away from what the truth is, Lord, for your glory is what we desire, what we seek in all things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What if I were to tell you, now that I've been here and have spoken before you a handful of times, that this sermon is only going to be 15 minutes? Amen. You guys get me right here. Okay, what if I were to say it's only going to be really like, like 20, 20 minutes? Would you believe me? You can say it out loud. I can, I can take it. You wouldn't believe it. What if I were to say to you, no, I really, no, no, I really, really promise, a, a, a preacher's promise. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm talking about me. Don't conjure up any other images in your mind to what other preachers have come before or, or on TV. It's only going to be 20 minutes. I, pro, I, I, I super promise. Like, I really, really promise that it's going to be 20 minutes. It might be hard for you to believe. Now, now why? Have I ever gone 15 minutes before? Now, I, I sometimes go 15 minutes on prayer. I know that. Let alone with the passage here from Scripture. But the reality is, you're saying that, well, Kevin, honestly, uh, what you're saying and what we know to be true in the past from your actions, they don't necessarily kind of line up. You know, we see this a lot as kids, right? As, as children, I remember, I played out in the circle all day forever. Um, I played as many sports as I could. Whatever sport somebody wanted to play, I would want to play. And there would always be this time when maybe kids got home and they wanted to then join you, and they would just say something crazy like they'd done some great feat. Hey, guys, I just made 100 baskets in a row. And we'd be like, yeah, yeah, sure you did. No, 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 really, I did, I did, I did. I made 100 baskets. I mean, nobody was here when I did it, but I had the form and everything. I even did it underhanded like they used to do. No, you didn't, Jimmy. Like, you never did that. You weren't there, and I've not seen you make two baskets in a row. No, I swear that I did it. Yeah, okay, no, no, not. I swear on my grandmother's grave. Ooh. It just got serious, right? Okay, I still don't believe. I swear on my Nana's Italian meatball recipe that I made 100 in a row. Now, what's going on there? That the words that we're saying, the proclamations that we're making, are not lining up with those in our audience. And that is because our actions don't necessarily back that. They don't see that as true. It's not viable that you would make 100 in a row. And so what we tend to do then is say, well, let me substantiate that by bringing in some higher authority. Let me put more weight on my words because you need to believe me. No, really, I'm true. No, my heart is really saying, hey, this is right. 
And we're trying to conjure up an image of ourselves that might not line up with the actions that people have seen. Well, in our global social media-driven world, it's becoming more and more evident that our words bear much less weight than they have before. At least we realize that. And their substance is but a hollowed-out shell grasping at anything to stay meaningful. The picture on the screens, as you see, is of a person swearing on a Bible prior to testifying in a court of law. That is supposed to be right a serious um, weight to their testimony. It's supposed to add weight to their word. It's supposed to suggest that now they've placed their hand on the truth, and they are to align their word and testimony in such a way that it does not waver from the truth, that benchmark. It's supposed to be a sobering commitment and not merely a callous formality. So what differentiates the Christian's word? What, what differentiates your word? What differentiates my word? Why is our word supposed to be so much different, so believable? Proverbs 22.1 tells us this, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. And Solomon, of course, was wise as he states that chasing after anything which puts your integrity in jeopardy is a foolish choice. Even riches should not precede the character of a man. But like a chisel, our word assists in carving away that which crumbles around our true character, revealing the real me for all the world to see. Jesus tells us in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. Luke brings a little bit more clarity to that same engagement with Jesus, and Jesus says in Luke, the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance, or maybe your translation says, the overflow of the heart's, out of that, the mouth then speaks, connecting our hearts with our mouths, what we say with what's inside of us. In other words, our word gives people a lens by which we all can see what's really going on on the inside, whether we like it or whether we don't. It reflects what is being stored up in our hearts. And so, does our word hold a weight of character and integrity that we think it does. As Christians, does it hold the weight that it should carry? As image bearers of God, does it reflect our Father's intentions? Think about that. Think about your life to date, the relationships that you have as parents to your kids and kids as you relate to your parents does your word hold the weight of integrity? Is what you're saying and what you promise and things that you say, is it true when you speak to them? Parents, is it true when you speak to your children? I will do. I promise to do. I will get to that. We will be together. Those things that we say to our family, your friends, your coworkers around you, teachers to your students. Does our word hold weight? as Christians, as image bearers of God. And so as we continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just come out of stressing the importance of the permanence of marriage, that when the words that we say, I do, we actually mean it. 
We should not treat it as something trivial. Why? Because marriage reflects Christ's relationship with the church. In other words, the words that we speak and the precious and gracious covenants that we have in marriage, those words are to be together. They're not to be separated. Why? Because God has something to say not only about us, but about him in our words as image bearers of God. There's something more to it that we don't necessarily realize in totality with our words as we reflect who God is. Much is like the mystery of marriage. And so now we'll continue on to oath-taking or swearing, synonymous in essence. We're going to continue on a similar fashion by looking up what was said in the law, what Jesus was referring to. Uh, We will look at how the Jews, especially the Pharisees, have corrupted distorted and enforced it, and we will see what Jesus intended for them and for us today. So let's move through this few verses, kind of um, one by one. Verse 33, it says this, as Jesus is talking to them, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. What Jesus is doing, he's pointing out to a summary of verses. This isn't one particular verse. He's actually pointing to a summary of verses that you will find pretty much in and throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So we're going to look at them just one by one. There are four of them I just want to hit. The first, which you're going to find on your screens, is Numbers 30, verses 2. And it says this, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath, to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. The next one is Deuteronomy twenty-three twenty-one. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will not be guilty of sin. So those first two verses that we see there kind of speak to, hey, if you're going to make a promise, you need to be true to your word. You need to carry out Um, You need to carry it out into fulfillment. This is something that if you speak something, you make a promise of something, you need to do what you said you were going to do. You made a commitment. Fulfill it. Do that. But then in these next two verses, the the first two were about promises, um, we see for a very real reason what the next two slides, how they shed light on actually furthering developing this. In Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Well, in this verse, we see clearly now that our words, when speaking falsely, like, they take it up a notch here. It's not just that we're going to, like, totally not follow through on our commitment and therefore make this kind of messy. I've said I'd do something for you. I didn't do it. I'm really, really sorry. Now, if we don't follow through on that commitment, Leviticus 19 takes it up a step and says, what? Why? Not only are you messing this up, but you're profaning the name of God. When we don't follow through in our commitments, we start to profane the name of God. So this picture is being more fully developed. And these three verses, mind you, all stem from something, right? They all come from and out of the Ten Commandments, and more specifically, the Third Commandment. Let's go there, Exodus 20, verse 7. It says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This commandment in broad terms directs God's people to not put his name on our lips and then proceed to attach his holy name to something that does not match his holy character. In other words, if you're going to be a light into the nation utilizing my name for unholy purposes, such as lying, such as broken promises, it diminishes that light and blasphemes my character. 
And now, God says, you will be held accountable. So our word and what we say, how we say it, and our actions that follow that are completely conjoined. You cannot separate the two. It speaks to our character, and because God is in us, it directly speaks to his character. How are we coming across to other people in regard to how we reflect the image of God through our word, our promises, what we say to each other? God is emphasizing the way we conduct ourselves in our speech, and it needs to be consistent with our actions If God is not a man that he should lie, as Numbers 23 states, then we who represent our maker to the nations should follow suit. The oaths, the swearing, the vow fulfilling, which somehow lost all holy traction with God's people is what Jesus is going to address in the next few verses. So let's move on in verses 34 through 36. He says this, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, Or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus here clearly is referencing the Pharisees' distortion of the law. How that they were understanding it. Not only that, but how that they were applying it. How they were letting people know, hey, this is what is really meant. Remember, the Pharisees were the ones who... The keepers of the law, they were the ones that in essence were to explain what God's word meant, what the Torah and how that they should enact that amongst themselves and understand who God is. And thus, their worship was supposed to follow suit. So their word, as they were explaining it, was extremely important. So if they started to distort what was being said, or certainly the intention of what was being said, and if their hearts got so far off kilter, that was a, an effect, a domino effect down the ages. And so Jesus is coming to the point where this is what is being said. He quotes some of what they do say, and he's saying, let me address this. They had shifted these commandments to a variety of formulas. When the commandment said this, do not take the name of the Lord in vain, they emphasized the name of the Lord and minimize their vain hearts in the process. So, in other words, what was important was that they wouldn't use the particular name of the Lord, like the name of the Lord, in their vows. And thus, they made elaborate schemes and rules as kind of a workaround. They would swear by heaven, they would swear by earth, they would swear by their person, the hairs on their head, you name it, as long as they weren't using God's name, except for really, really important things. If you didn't do that, then you were in step with God's commandments. Now, you understand this particularity. One of my children is very particular, very in the box. If you say something, he literally, that just gave away my child, he literally understands it to a T. He functions extremely well in that capacity. And we understand this like when we give a command maybe to our kids, say, why don't you go upstairs? I need you to clean your room. And maybe 10 minutes later, sometimes five minutes later, And sometimes by miraculous intervention, one minute later, our child says, it's done, can I come down? Can I get on the video games? Can I do whatever it is? And so you go up then to check as a good parent, thorough in duty. And you walk upstairs, and as you're walking, just about to go into the room, outside of the room is a laundry basket. And in that laundry basket sits folded clothing you've spent the afternoon doing. But your child has somehow missed it. Why have they missed that? 
Go clean your room. It's not inside the room. Uh, in, uh, in, out. It's outside of the room. They walk by that like, no, I'm going to clean my room. Not only that, as you proceed forward into the room, the clothes that were on the floor are not on the floor anymore. Oh, but you got parent skills. And so what do you do? Well, I'm going to go in the drawer to see what's been put in there, because I'm sure what's been on the door is either in the hamper to be washed, or it's going to be folded in the drawer. Nice and neat. And as you open the drawers, the parental OCD, some call it agita, it's just piled in there. It's not even, you don't know what it is. You don't know if there's food in there, clothing in there. You're not sure. And then you go to the closet door. You don't even go to the closet door. Let's get real anymore. You just don't do it. You walk out of there and graciously, with compassion, address your child. And it's a loving moment which builds character in that relationship. <laughs> there, there might be tears, more hugs, more commitments to fidelity. All of those things. But why? Because your child heard something very particular, did not hear your heart, used your words, and then put them against you. Mom, that laundry basket wasn't in my room. <laughs> Stay in your room. You're grounded. Well, that's what happens, right? We understand how that happens. This is what the Pharisees were doing. We're taking, we're not using the name of the Lord. So if we're not supposed to use the name of the Lord, let us use all of these other things so that when we speak, we can actually get around the truth of our statements. We can get around the reality that we don't have to complete what we really said. Now, if we happen to use the name of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, well, then we will. That's the covenant name of God. Those are for the most prim, proper, and prestigious times. We will do that. And we'll do that when we feel it is appropriate. And so there's all these little workarounds, and they took a piece, took apart every piece of the law. So Jesus shows that the Pharisees had shifted their attention away from the heart and meaning of the commandments and placed it on some formula, only emphasizing a part. What it came to be was that only the vows or oaths that included the divine name were actually binding vows. All other vows that vaguely pointed in God's direction were allowed to be circumspect. All of this pointed to the Pharisees wiggling out of the actual commitment by restricting its intention. Understand that. That's at the heart of the matter right here. These laws, these commandments, what God desires of us, it's too restricting how can I wiggle out of what this holy God wants me to do in order to reflect him? Well, I don't want to do that, so let me work myself around that. And so the laws that were given to Moses and worked out through the Pentateuch, and now we're here much, much later, have been so distorted that they don't even resemble what it was. The heart is gone and lost. Well, Jesus brings more clarity to this. We'll turn to Matthew 23. It will be on your screens. Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22. Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22. And kind of Jesus sheds a little bit more light if you combine these two passages together to understand because he references this in more, uh, in more totality and fullness. And he says this, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? 
So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus is addressing the fact that the Pharisees were attempting to detach or unhinge the words of the law from the intention of the law, which cannot be done. They are inseparable. And these formulas of both taking and swearing, mentioning and not mentioning God's name completely miss the point. What he's saying here in this passage to them in the Sermon on the Mount is that swearing by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, the reality is all were God's. God made all the heavens. God made all the earth. Psalm 139, God knows the hairs that are on your head or were on your head at some point. God knows all of this. If you were to swear by all of those, by extension, you're utilizing and bringing forth God's name. Thus, if you're not going to be consistent in following through on those things, you are swearing by God, and you're doing it in a vain way, in a way in which pleases yourself, brings glory to you, and that you now have control of how that law is supposed to be applied and walked out. And when you do that, you're liable to judgment by that same law. By that same law. And that should wake up the Pharisees and us. When we speak, there are no ways around the fact that we are calling upon God as witness to judge our hearts and intentions. John Stott notes that they were trying to relax or reduce the law in order to make it more manageable, more comfortable. In doing so, the demands of the law became, well, less demanding. Now, we do that sometimes, right? We see that um, what Scripture states as we kind of read it, maybe in devotions or maybe somebody brings it out, and it can be uncomfortable. Am I right? Yes? Does Scripture get uncomfortable when it confronts us in our hearts? Yes or no? Yes, it does. It's supposed to do that. Why? Because God loves us enough to say, hey, let's adjust course here to what your heart is doing or what your heart is thinking or what your heart is saying. Now, to take even more of a close interaction with this, in the last two weeks, we talked about lust. We talked about um, divorce. If this is your first Sunday, you missed some doozies. Get it online. So we do this in lust, and we do this in divorce, right? And we do this in anger, even. In lust, we say, oh, well, I didn't really look at her. I didn't dwell too long on that site. That wasn't as bad as before. We look to justify that. In anger, well, she deserved to be talked about. She's two-faced anyway. Who cares? She sits in that pew. She thinks she's this and she thinks she's that. I'm allowed to be angry at that, aren't I? Come here, let me tell you about it. We look to justify. We look to work around. We look to not be convicted. We want to be more comfortable in how we act and what we say when God's law, when his word, when his truth confronts our hearts. Why? Because our hearts are bent in on ourselves. And what Jesus is doing by his word is expressing his holy character and his nature so that we too, in turn, might repent and reflect that to others in our word and in our deeds. In reality, the law raised the bar to a standard which nobody could meet. Thus, God points out just how holy he is. But instead of recognizing their own sin and need for a Savior, which is precisely what the law was supposed to do. The law was there not to necessarily shackle everyone, but it was there to say, hey, we're on this road here. I'm hedging you in. I'm pointing to your need for a Savior who was to come. 
Israel's Savior. Instead of it conjuring up that for them, the Pharisees took the law apart so that it was less demanding and tweaked it in such a way that its application was still taxing and burdensome, yet now it completely missed the mark so that Christ was not even necessary. In other words, not only did they tax and burden themselves and those who were hearing, but now they completely were off the road. So whereas the law pointed to Christ's coming, and all of what it did to hedge everybody in, saying, hey, we're on the straight and narrow here. This is what it means to be a holy people. They said, you know what? That's too much. Let me do too much, but let me do too much over here, and let me point in the complete other direction. And now, now they had no hope. If you followed what the Pharisees were doing, what they were implementing, you had no hope to even recognize Christ when he came. They missed the purpose. They missed the intent. They messed with the letter of the law. And now their hearts were chasing after what they wanted. And they were God unto themselves. I don't know about you, but it reminded me of this. If I'm starting to do something or a project or I'm trying to become mechanically inclined, which I'm not, um, and I try to take a shortcut. We know this in directions. But you, you go and you try to take a shortcut because you see all of this, what's in front of you. And what you wind up doing is actually messing things up, and it actually takes you longer than if you'd actually followed the directions. Am, am, I, am I the only one who, who's done that? Okay, it's for me then. That was for me. Note to self, that's just for me. Moving on. Verse 37. He says this, let what, you simply, let, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Pretty strong statement, because if you were one who thought that you were following the law to a T, that you were dotting your I's and that you were crossing your T's, this would be actually a shock statement to you, that now what you're saying, that what I've done, what I've implemented, what I've taught in regard to the Pharisees, now you're saying doesn't come from or is rooted in the law, which is holy and perfect, now you're saying it's stemming from something evil? This would actually kind of like, whoa, taken aback. But remember that this is what Christ is trying to do, get to the root of the issues. He's zeroing in on the fact that as people of God, when we try to make something more than or different than what God has clearly put forth, we are attempting to sidestep a holy decree. Have you ever tried to avoid something that you know you should do? and you try to sidestep that, and you're convicted and you know it, and as a Christian, you're trying to pile forth and go ahead, but you just can't let it go. Why? Because God is showing you, plain and simple, some things are just in front of you. Do them. Be obedient. The longer road is longer. It's generally harder. It's 40 years in the desert at times, right? Now, the good thing about the gospel and its whole picture is that God is still gracious, right? He still understands that we're faulty, that we do stray at times, but God is so gracious that he still gently nudges us. He doesn't slap us amongst our head. Christ is saying it's unnecessary to swear, so don't do it. In fact, at minimum, you're being redundant as Christians when calling on God. In worst case, you're being influenced by evil. Being image bearers of the Most High should be sufficient, so honor him by staying true to your word. Now, for those of us in here who might be conjuring up various other passages in the Bible, I think this is kind of important. Um, When we see, for instance, when Abraham is ready to sacrifice uh, his son, Isaac, 
And we hear God say the words, by myself I have sworn. You're saying, but Kevin, Jesus tells us not to swear here, but Father here in the Old Testament and in other passages, he uses these words I swear by. Why is that? Why, why does that happen? It seems that there's a disconnect or an inconsistency, maybe. Well, like many other passages in Scripture where God's communicating to man, he's not doing it for his own benefit. As Numbers says, that God is not a man that he should lie. In other words, God represents truth. It is him. It exudes from him. He cannot bleed anything else other than truth. He cannot state anything that isn't true. He is the very definition of truth. So when he's saying, I swear by my own name, because there is no other name to swear by, he's saying, I'm just letting you know in your terms what I mean. He's communicating to man. He's condescending in such a way that with his language, as I say, I'm getting on your level. This is what I mean by it. It's like saying to a kid, hey, did you have an oopsie? Did you fall down? He's he's coming down. Let me get on the same page as you. Let me look you in the eye so that you understand what I mean. That is God trying to show himself to us as he reveals himself to us so that we could then reflect him in our speech. So then, what does this mean for us as we look at this? Maybe you have not sworn to the degree that you hear um, the Pharisees, maybe what they use, I don't know, I don't think I've heard in this church at this point, I swear by Jerusalem, or the gold on the temple, I don't think I've heard that, in the halls, or at the water fountains, or in Wired at this point. But what about us, for our speech? Do people look at us and say, wow, that is somebody who is an upright man, that is somebody who is a trustworthy woman, that is somebody to whom I would definitely divulge things, or trust that they would come to me and for my good and for God's glory, pray with me, care about me. That's somebody who I can ask that if I were to have something done and they said they would be there, they actually will be there. Are you one of those people? Sometimes if people have not come up to us, that in itself might be evidence of how we are projecting ourselves. But sometimes that just means that we need to put ourselves out there and actually say, hey, I do want to be a light unto God, that my word would be true, and that you do engage those who are around you. But what the Sermon on the Mount is describing, especially in Matthew, is what it means to be a citizen, the kingdom of heaven, and how citizens act according to God that we were supposed to act under his rule. We represent him among his people and among the nations. Remember, they're looking on at us saying, how are we treating each other? Does their word hold weight with each other? That reflects a godly community. That reflects that oneness that we're talking about. That reflects God. And how are we then, as we go out from here and speak and engage with other people? How is our word? I know that you can look in culture right now, and I feel like we are every year in a presidential cycle, even though we're not, but this year we happen to be. I don't feel like the last three years have changed. It's only going to get worse where everybody's going to promise everything. And you're going to see clear as day, whether it be reporters, whether it be nominees, whether it be our current president, you will see people swearing upon anything they can to say, I will do this, I will do that. And everyone is looking for some kind of fresh air that somebody actually does something that they state and for the right intention. Where is the heart? The goal is that our representation as Christians in this world reflects the character of God, as I said before, but both in word and deed. And Christ states that we should not have to make oaths or swear by any name. 
He says just to speak plainly and let your words suffice as yes or no. On this side of the cross, God's Spirit in us should provide the strength and the conviction we need to carry forth or carry through on that yes or no. Now, I didn't even mention to this individual, I'm going to mention now, but Mike Jones often comes in, and he, throughout the week, he's like one of these stealth workers. You don't even know he's here sometimes unless you run into him, and you're like scared because he's doing something and he's serving. He, he does it often. Um, but the other week, I asked him, I said, you know what, hey, we have some dry erase boards. And I ask forgiveness now from the pulpit if you, I shouldn't share any of this. But I said, can you hang some dry erase boards for us? And this is what he said to me. He didn't say, yes, I'll do it. He's a wise man. He goes, let me see what I can do. Let me take some measurements. Before he committed to doing it, he wanted to make sure that he could follow through probably on his commitment. I'm sure he had a time frame. I'm sure there were other things he had to do. But it was important to him that as he communicated to me, at least this is how I took it, that he wanted to make sure that he could follow through. And next thing you know, the next time I went out there, I don't even know if it was that day or the next day. I have no idea when he did it. But all of them were hung. All the boxes were gone. Everything was done. And then he did another huge dry erase board that was in another classroom. I had no idea that he was going to do it. I merely mentioned that in passing. But what did he do? He wanted to make sure that he could follow through on the word that he had made to me. And he let his actions speak so that when his words do speak, I can absolutely count on them. I would encourage you not to go now to ask Mike to hang various things in your home. You need to work that out on your own. Unless it's causing more marital conflict, that's another sermon. John Stott says this, Kingdom people have honesty, integrity, and reliability, which are indispensable characteristics. Our words should be good enough. Swearing, oath-taking, they are a pathetic confession of our dishonesty. Exaggerated language only proves the point that humans are often liars, so much so that we frequently use superlatives. It's a, it's a stinging reflection and certain a rebuke. Wouldn't it be great if Christians could just be trusted by the word? My word is my bond, as you hear, as it still hangs, I believe, on the London Stock Exchange. Shake a hand. There were days where that was all you needed. Hey, come over and help me? Yeah, sure I will. It's done. We would certainly stand out. In your bulletin, there's a quote by Craig Bloomberg. It says this, Jesus' followers should be people whose words are so characterized by integrity that others need no formal assurance of their truthfulness in order to trust them. The more we feel the need to bolster our word, the more devalued our word actually becomes. On this side of the cross, God has given us a spirit that we would actually walk it out. That all we have to say is yes or no. We don't have to go through elaborate schemes or the excuse making that maybe follows afterwards when you haven't followed through on your word. Now I realize that there are some times when it just can't happen. There are things that do get in the way, but you come back and just in humility, forgive me, I messed up, this didn't happen, I didn't realize this happened. Can we try this again? I want you to trust me. I want you to be able to rely on me. This is how Christ has built us as a body together. We're not supposed to go it alone. There's a need for us to rely on each other. And when we communicate with our words, our actions must follow. Why? Because it represents the God whom we serve. The God who's instilled in us a conviction to actually follow through. The God who with us made the ultimate follow through in the gospel. My words said to Abraham, through covenant, that I will fulfill it because you can't. And he did through Jesus Christ. And that the gospel now that binds us together is that grace of snudge and conviction that lets us understand that because God followed through, and not only that has empowered us by his spirit, we then can have full assurance that we can follow through in our word. Think well. Think deeply about how you engage each other with your words and how you engage those who are not in Christ 
with your words. The reality is that Christ takes our broken word and our broken heart and brings life to that which was dead. We have life in and through him, so let our word reflect that. In closing, Paul says to the Corinthians this, for all the promises of God, this is in um, 2 Corinthians 1, just verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is why it is through him, Christ, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So remember that. We can utter a yes and a no because we have integrity, because God has instilled in us his spirit so that we could walk out what it looks like to be a, a person, a man, a woman, a child who lives under the rule of the goodness, of the graciousness, and the kingdom of God. And we are to be a light into the nations, and our words will communicate that. We cannot separate what God has commanded from our actions. We cannot work around integrity. Or, as I said earlier, our words begin to chisel away that which is fake. And the reality of our character remains. And it will be clear as people look on at us, and as we say to them our words, Know that God has empowered you by his Spirit to reflect his goodness through our words to a world that is certainly lost. They're dying. They're looking for truth. They're begging for truth. So much so, they're making up truth. Let us be a light to the world. Amen? Father, we thank you for your goodness, God, in our lives. Again, I will not stop saying that because you are good. Your law points us in a way that shows you as holy. It points us in a way as to act and represent you who are holy, that we would be a light to the nations. Help us in our words, in our character, with our integrity, be truthful. We know that your spirit is in us. It's given us that ability, and you show us in your gracious gospel how you fulfilled your word. Help us, in turn, be that light with our word because of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.